0: Hi friends, hope you're doing well today and great to have your company again. Now, most often when we've talked about C.S. Lewis on this podcast, it's because we've been exploring his wonderful Chronicles of Narnia. However, Lewis has in fact written other notable works of fiction, which as you can guess are just as profound and thought-provoking as Narnia. Today, we're going to be exploring a scene from his book called The Great Divorce. If you haven't read this story, it's a real imaginative witty gem and the title actually refers to the divorce between those in hell and those in heaven. So the basic premise of the story is that a busload of people from hell get a one day respite into heaven. In the story, hell is symbolised as this vast, bleak city where everyone is bickering and trying to keep as far away from one another as possible. Heaven on the other hand is actually barely described. For all we visit in the book is a sort of threshold or forecourt of the heavenly mountain. A place which is nevertheless described as more real, more physical, more beautiful than anything here on earth. Flying in the face of any heresy that heaven is a wispy, hyperspiritual, dreamy place, Lewis presents heaven as real reality. More real than this world, more full, more solid, more permanent. Indeed, when the souls from hell first arrive even at the threshold of heaven, they in fact find that they are the ghosts. They learn that should a ghostly soul wish to continue onto the heavenly mountain, they must learn and cooperate and be purified in such a way that their ghostly state can actually become more solid and can handle the sheer physicalness of heaven. Most of The Great Divorce then follows the conversations and interactions that take place between the ghosts of hell and the solid people of heaven. Because it is the great C.S. Lewis we're talking about, I'm actually going to read to you a rather longish passage from the book. I trust the imagery in this passage will speak for itself, so after reading, I'll leave a few minutes' pause just for private reflection. After this, for those who are interested, I will offer a few points of my own reflections, if by chance it can aid you. And just as a way of background, there are three main characters in the scene, uh, four if you include the narrator as the first person spectator. The main character is one of the ghosts visiting from hell. The second character is a little red lizard who sits on the shoulder of this ghost and whispers to him and tries to influence him. In this passage, the lizard symbolises lust, or more accurately, the lust the man has grown hopelessly attached to. And the third character in the scene is a big, bright, fiery angel, who in this passage is a representation of God, if you like. Okay, with that in mind, let's tuck into the passage. I saw coming towards us one of the ghosts who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, He was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smoke differs. Some had been whitish, this one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him he ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward, away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The voice came from a being more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him, as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. "'Yes, I'm off,' said the ghost. "'Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. "'I told this little chap,' here he indicated the lizard, "'that he'd have to keep quiet if he came here, "'which he insisted on doing. "'Of course, his stuff won't do here. "'I realised that, but he won't stop. "'I'll just have to go home now.' "'Would you like me to make him quiet?' "'said the flaming spirit angel, as I now understood. "'Of course I would,' said the ghost.' Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, hang on, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Oh, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything like so drastic. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question I'm quite open to consider, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for a moment, I was only thinking about silencing him, but here, well, it's just so damn embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please really don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process will be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll just think over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It will be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present here. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, well, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward. But it isn't that, really. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit, I have sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and innocent. You might say, quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it'll kill me, it won't. But supposing it did, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. May I kill it? Oh, damn and blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, Oh, God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I'd never heard on earth. The Burning One closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, onto the turf. Ow, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment I could make out nothing distinctly happening. Then I saw, between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger the legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched and if my attention had not wavered I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was at the same time something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and a tail of gold. It was smooth and shiny, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. At each step, the land shook and the trees dindled. The new man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have only been liquid love and brightness which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it all, In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I well knew what was happening. There was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star far off on a gold plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then, still like a star, I saw them winding up Scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment, till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. "'Do you understand all this, my son?' said the teacher. "'I don't know about all, sir,' said I. "'Am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into a horse?' "'Yes, but it was killed first. "'You will not forget that part of the story, hey?' "'I'll try not to, sir. "'But does it mean that everything that is in us can go onto the mountains?' "'Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go as it is now. "'Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again.' if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Alright, quite a vivid and compelling scene, isn't it? As much as there is an exaggerated sense of humour in the ghost character, I wonder if it is slightly funny because we actually can identify with this struggle. I will now offer three reflections, if it helps you, to deepen in the story even further. Firstly, it's about the sheer resistance the ghost had to allowing God to burn the lizard off. While the lizard represents the man's attachment to lust in this story, I want to suggest the lizard stands for any attachment or habit that has grasped and possessed us and taken away our freedom. From my pastoral experiences, we all have a big sin, capital B, capital S, that seems to have its tentacles firmly around us. But stranger still, is at least part of us is actually quite happy being trapped by these tentacles? Look at our ghost character, how many reasons and justifications he came up with to keep his sinister companion. Most of us, I wager, are like him. And like St. Augustine, praying about his lust, says to the Lord, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. (laughs) Friends, one of the greatest obstacles to being free from any sin is that we suffer from mañana syndrome. Mañana is a Spanish word that means tomorrow. Tomorrow is where the grace is, and tomorrow I'll actually start again in a fresh new beginning. No, grace can only be received today. And in fact, God can only be encountered in the present. The flaw with tomorrowitis itis is that tomorrow, tomorrowitis itis will strike again. The only way we can be free is to resolve to receive the grace given today. After all, we pray for daily bread not bread for a lifetime. Speaking about the grace of the present moment, I have found that in my own life, the enemy gets me to give up by either highlighting the burden of the future or the failures of the past. All the energy is placed in either the future or the past instead of the present. Regarding the future, he whispers something like, you know, that even if you succeed today, Lawrence, and even tomorrow, you won't be able to keep this up forever, you know. You will fall, so you might as well just give up now. <laughs> Regarding the past, he'll whisper, Look at how you failed miserably in the past. Give up now. Don't deceive yourself that this time will be any different. Just save your strength and enjoy yourself. Sound familiar? Again, like the enemy getting us fixated on either the future or the past, what the lizard is trying to do is to rob us of the grace of the present, where God actually is. Friends, be aware. Be attentive. Like the angel in the story, God patiently seeks our permission in order to act. And this can only be done daily. Which means, if you're ever going to make any resolutions about your sin, let it not be, I resolve never again to succumb to this lizard in the future, but rather, I resolve to receive God's grace daily, and that will be enough for me. The next detail I want to highlight is the very real pain we feel when we think about being separated from the lizard on our shoulder. Remember the many clever ways the lizard tries to convince the ghost that he is his friend and he cannot live without him? Isn't that so true with sin in our life? Another image of sin C.S. Lewis gives us in another of his works, I can't remember which one, is actually the shadowy bride. Where, on one hand, we are very much wedded with these shadowy brides and we delight in them and have a form of intimacy with them, but the only closeness we have with them is a shadowy dependency. See, when it comes to habitual sin, the reason we are unable to renounce them isn't because we don't want to, but because of something like separation anxiety. If we have lived for years, even decades of our lives with a particular sin, it begins to feel like a part of our identity, or at least our way of being in the world, simply coping. Hence, oftentimes simple discipline and willpower alone won't be enough motivation to free us from such vice. Why would someone divorce themselves from their shadowy brides if there is no real alternative bride, if shadows is all they have? What then shall we do? This question leads to my final image for reflection, and is probably my favorite from the passage. I love how the lizard, once the ghost allows it to be put to death, gets transformed into a beautiful stallion, a horse that carries the man into heaven. Repeating the actual text of Lewis again, he says, what is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing, compared with the richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Amen, right? Note that when the lizard transforms, the man himself becomes transformed too, from a ghostly figure into a glorious man with a body fit for heaven. These little details are not insignificant, for indeed they are the reason why Christianity is so earth-shakingly profound and cosmically changing. When we finally repent and hand over our sins to God, he doesn't simply destroy or remove them, he transfigures them into something glorious, the very means by which we become holy. What was once our greatest curse and tripping stone becomes the greatest blessing and the means of holiness for others. So ultimately, what's the message here for us? Fight the good fight against sin. Yes, set boundaries, examine your motives, set up accountability partners, etc. etc. But more importantly, don't focus on the lizard. Focus on the stallion instead. Fix your eyes upon the Lord and his promises and let the beauty of his love and truth compel you away from sin. This means that when you are mired in shame and the stench of your sin, pray more, not less. Fix your attention upon all that is good and true and noble, even if it threatens to be painful at the time. As the line of the famous old hymn goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with C.S. Lewis and his lizard turned stallion. As a already naturally meditative piece today, I don't really feel it necessary to offer a practical Purim exercise any more than just to deepen in whatever grace uh, arrived this episode for you. As a cherry on top finale though, I will offer one final encouragement. We have a saying in our community that the place of your greatest woundedness will become the place of your strongest ministry. Just like the wounds of the resurrected Christ ceased to become a curse, but rather became a font of blessing and healing for the entire world, so it goes with our wounds once they have been redeemed by Christ. Friends, you have no idea what blessings God can work through you onto others through the very means of your greatest wounding. May it come to be then, that your yes to God's fiery hands of love will grant you not only your own stallion, but the stallion of many, many other souls too.